The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Psalm 70, beginning at verse 1. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lindsay Blair. And whenever Todd Teller is up here for a baptism, I bring stuff like this to do stuff like this. There we go. <laughs> nothing, nothing so wonderful as a messy baptism. Uh, good morning, uh, everybody. Uh, we are uh, in our series on... Uh, different kinds of psalms, and this week we come to uh, what is known as the imprecatory psalms. Those are psalms uh, that you pray against other people. So um, there's a lot of context that has to go around this in order for you to legitimately pray these prayers. Uh, So hopefully this morning will be an opportunity for us to refine our understanding of that context so we know how to use these things. Uh, So some years ago, uh, and this happened in New York City, there was a man who was angry with a fashion model that he didn't know personally, but he was infuriated with her because of how beautiful she was. And because he was infuriated with how beautiful she was, he deputized uh, an aggressor to assault her and carve up her face. True story. Now, this is maybe one of the worst expressions of how envy functions. Uh, It starts in the heart where uh, a person either becomes glad about or or tries to achieve and create another person's misfortune. And the other internal dynamic of envy is that you resent other people for the good fortune that they possess— that you have not been able to possess yourself. And a lot of times, envy then takes the form of relational aggression. It goes on the attack. Sometimes people get attacked from above. So you've got David, he's a citizen of Israel, for instance, and King Saul, who is the king, uh, who is above him in rank and position and power and everything else, goes on the attack against David because David is more popular than Saul. And so Saul envies David's popularity. But then later in his life, when he is king, David's son Absalom attacks him from below. Uh, His son who is is beneath him in the family hierarchy and and in the whole honor your father and mother thing. But Absalom goes on the attack against his father because he is envious of his father's power and uh, influence, and he wants it for himself. And so 
we're not told which of these or which other circumstance in David's life this psalm applies to, but we do know that it can apply to all of them. In verses 1 and 2, David says words like this, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste. In other words, hurry up. Get going. Where are you? Make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. This is what you call an imprecatory psalm, and it's essentially a petition to God that God would contend with people who want to carve up your face. For people who are offended by or who envy the beauty that is in you because of the work of Christ in you, to narrow the context. So the 70th 70th Psalm is widely understood to be a condensed version of the one right before it, Psalm 69. And in that Psalm, David says things like this, I'm sinking, I'm weary, my eyes are growing dim, waiting for God. People hate me without cause, attack me with lies, demand that I restore things that I did not steal. And then David, it says, looks for pity and he looks for comforters, but he finds none. I am afflicted and I am in pain, he goes on, but, and this is how he concludes it, the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners, either prisoners from um, from physical, uh, you know, assault or, or uh, assassination of character attempts, uh, whether, whether a prisoner from aggression above you or a prisoner from aggression below you, the Lord does not despise his own who are prisoners. And so if, you, if ever you find yourself under attack, these kinds of psalms are especially meant as a resource to comfort you. The Lord sees, the Lord knows, you're not alone, and it's also a prayer that the Lord wants to put in your mouth. This is also a prayer, and this this is going to require some, some nuance, to help you better love your enemies by praying against them. Okay, so I'm going to unpack that last statement uh, under three headings. First, an imprecatory psalm is a statement about your own worth and value, that you are not meant to be a doormat. Nobody is called to be a doormat. Secondly, it's a gesture of love for those who are injuring you. And then thirdly, it's an invitation for everyone in the equation to worship. So let's start with this. It's a statement about your own worth. You remember what Jesus said? I'll just ask you to complete the sentence. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's something implicit in that statement. There's an assumption that you are also someone who bears the image of God, and you are also someone who bears the status of an adopted, beloved, kept daughter or son of God through faith in Christ. In other words, you, too, are an image bearer of inestimable value. And it is right at times to ask God 
with all your heart to stand up for you. So I came across a few years ago this pamphlet that was given out to students, the student body in an elementary school. And uh, it was nine rules which essentially uh, fell under the heading of advice when somebody bullies you at school. And the nine rules are when you are bullied, that you refuse to get mad, that you treat the person who's being mean to you as if they're trying to help you, do not be afraid, do not verbally defend yourself, do not attack, if somebody physically hurts you, do not get angry, do not tell on bullies, do not be a sore loser, learn to laugh at yourself and not get hooked by put-downs. Okay, so one more time, I won't ask you to do this anymore. You can, you can be quiet for the rest of the sermon after this. Repeat after me. This is the worst advice ever. It was very likely written by a bully. I tried this approach in ninth grade. Or I'm sorry, not in ninth grade, in first grade. J.B. Rose was the playground bully, and I was his target. Every single day, Playtime was a time of terror for me in first grade. J.B. and his cronies, as soon as the teachers would go in the teacher's lounge and leave us unsupervised, they would find me, they would corner me, two of them would pin me down, and the other two would start wailing on me, kicking me, punching me in the face every day. I hated school. And so what I started to do, because I knew I couldn't defeat them, And I would rather get beat up than be a tattletale. Uh, As I started to bring candy to school and offer it to them as an appeasement offering. And then I started to bring money to school. And I gave my allowance to them on a regular basis. And then I would bring my toys, sometimes my favorite toys, and I would offer them to JB and his friends so they wouldn't hurt me. But the cost of this... Was, was an on-growing and, and festering bruise on my heart. What the imprecatory psalms are is a gift. It's God giving us words to help us tattle on Saul and Absalom and to do it appropriately and meaningfully and in a way that will compel God to act. So Saul, the king, had set out to assassinate David's body. He wanted him eliminated. He perceived him as a threat because of his popularity. Absalom set out to assassinate his father's character because he wanted his spot. And there's another thing at play, which I'll talk about in a minute. Absalom actually had been a victim of of David in his past, and it had never been resolved, and so it comes out this way. The 69th and the 70th Psalm speak to both of these situations and any other situation in which an injury or a hurt is perpetrated for the purpose of carving up somebody's face or of carving up somebody's heart or of carving up somebody's reputation, or of carving up somebody's 
finances or of carving up somebody's you know, credibility in social networks. It seeks to carve up instead of build up. So C.S. Lewis said this, Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object that will ever be presented to your senses. But I want you to know that that neighbor includes the one that you meet in the mirror. You are among the holiest objects next to the blessed sacrament itself that presents to us the body and blood of Christ himself. You are one of the holiest objects that will ever be presented to your senses. You are not called to be a doormat. You're not called to be a whipping mechanism on the playground for J.B. Rose and his friends. You're not called to that. You're not called to submit to the assaults of King Saul. You're not called to submit to the rebellion of your own son, Absalom. Which is why David says three times in this very short, condensed prayer, make haste, O God, hurry up, let's get going, deliver me. And then at the end, he says, here's my disposition in all of this. I'm tired. I'm ex- this is exhausting. I am poor. This is a king talking, you guys. I'm poor. I'm needy. Hasten to me, O God. He says for the fourth time, you are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. The imprecatory Psalms affirm that C.S. Lewis's words are true of you. One way we know this is, is by looking at the account in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen, uh, church history's first known Christian martyr, uh, is having rocks thrown at his face and at his skull uh, in an effort which succeeded to uh, end his life by religious aggressors. And as Stephen is in the process of being tortured, he looks up into heaven. He prays as Jesus had on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then it says he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, looking down on the incident. So what do we know about Jesus after he rose and ascended into heaven? What does the Apostles' Creed say next? He sat down at the right hand of the Father Almighty. It's what theologians call the session or the sitting of Christ. He sits because his job is done. But for this moment and for this instant, when his faithful son is being tortured, he stands up. Why do you think he does that? That's my boy. That's my brother you're messing with. This is not going to end well for you. It's a statement. It's a statement from the right hand of God itself. From where God sits, you are worth standing up for. You are worth defending and protecting. This is a statement about your own worth. But secondly, it's a gesture of love even for Saul and Absalom and anyone they may represent. This prayer turns up the heat on Saul for his aggression and on Absalom for his lust for power. James Montgomery Boyce, who is the uh, long-tenured senior pastor of of an affiliated church of ours called 10th Presbyterian Church in downtown Philadelphia, 
once said this, the kindest thing we can do for people who do wrong is pray that their plans would fail. It's the kindest thing you could do for a wrongdoer is to pray that their plans would fail. These are words, remember, that God is putting in the mouths of his people. It suggests that God is angry because of your pain and that God is resolute to act, to care for you in your pain. You know, Becky Pippert, in her book called Hope Has Its Reasons, says this about the anger of God. She says, we tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what's God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love, God's love, stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. The more a father loves his son, the more that father also hates in his son the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. So one thing that the imprecatory psalms can do is serve as a rescue mission tactic in hopes of rescuing Saul from himself and in hopes of rescuing Absalom from himself. It's like those of you who have been involved with an intervention to help an addict find the bottom. Because it's at the bottom, and we know this especially as Christians, where the possibility opens up for an addict to meet Jesus at the hem of Jesus' garment, where the healing happens. The healing happens most powerfully in the lowest places. And so the imprecatory psalm is, is a tactic, as it were, to get Saul and to get Absalom on their knees, if possible, pleading to God for mercy. It's a way that you might call loving an enemy to life. You know, think about this. This was as, as Absalom was, was publicly humiliating David in every way that he possibly could. This is his own father. And I won't get into the details because uh, it's a very full service today, but you can read the story yourself. And at the height of Absalom's efforts to publicly humiliate and shame and carve up the beautiful face of his father, who Jesus would later call the man after God's own heart, David, out of his heart, his mouth speaks, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. There's this heart cry even in the midst of the deepest betrayal, for restoration, reconciliation, and wholeness. Absalom does not respond. And Absalom ends up meeting his own end in his effort to supplant his own father. But there's also the recognition, for those who know the New Testament fairly well, that this is the love of Jesus Christ coming out of David 
Many years before Christ had actually been sent into the world, the Spirit of Christ was already operating in the heart of David and everyone, every one of these praying people who gave us the book of the Psalms. Matthew chapter 23, we see Jesus excoriating religious aggressors. He has no patience for religious aggression, and yet in that same chapter, at the very end, we see Jesus on a hill looking down on the city of Jerusalem whose gatekeepers are those religious aggressors that he had just finished excoriating. And he cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, even the same way that David cried out, Absalom, Absalom, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you under my wings as a mother chick gathers her hens, but you were not willing. It's a gesture of love. What the response from Saul or Absalom or Jerusalem ends up being is immaterial. The heart of Jesus, the heart of David, is for reconciliation, healing, wholeness, peace, even as they are being carved up in the face. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Somebody crying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Somebody saying to a lifetime sinner and rebel, today you'll be with me in paradise. It sounds very familiar. As he got his face carved up, thorns on his head, spear in his side, nails in his hands and feet, the Father's face turned in the other direction, not because Jesus had done anything wrong, but because of the wrongs that we have done and continue to do. which makes it also an invitation to worship. Verses 4 through 6, he writes, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. So, several weeks ago... um, Nate Tasker asked uh, Kevin and Cooper Twitt to do one of their hymn sings that they, they toured, you know, different places over the summer. Uh, here at, uh, for Christ Pres, they stood right there, did some great hymns. One of the things that Kevin does during those hymn sings is he gives these, these teaching interludes between, between the hymns, as, as Nate Tasker often does for us in our liturgy. And one of the things that Kevin said and it, you know, Kevin Twitt has taught me a lot of things, but, but this is the thing that, that I've learned the greatest and that's had the most impact on me from Kevin Twitt in terms of my own philosophy of liturgy and worship. Kevin dogmatically told us in the kindest sort of way that we must put honest songs in people's mouths. Honest songs. It can't be all happy, clappy, and gladness, and so on, even though there's absolutely a place for exuberance in the worship of God and clashing cymbals and all all the things that the Psalms themselves talk about. But the Psalms are filled with the full range of human emotion, including sadness, anger, loneliness, fear, shame, guilt, all these other distressed emotions that accompany gladness. 
And the Psalms are filled with prayer after prayer after prayer that validate, dignify, and invite honest songs. And these songs essentially say three things, especially the imprecatory ones. Number one, honestly, Lord, I'm hurting. This feels wrong. You have said I am worth more than this. You have called me a daughter or son, adopted, beloved, worth singing over, worth protecting and defending. So make haste. What are you waiting for? Number two, I am poor and needy. I'm not strong enough to stand up for myself. I can't face this hurt, these lies, all the gossip, the violence to my body, the violence to my reputation in the shadows. I'm alone. And number three, even if you delay and stay silent, I will trust and worship. Even if you don't come through when they toss us into the fiery furnace, we will not bow to any other thing. We will hold fast to integrity as the Lord holds fast to us. It is, it is His character that tells us the truth about our circumstances. It is not our circumstances that tell us the truth about His character. David surrenders his trust before any relief comes from his circumstances. So why does he place no conditions on God? For a lot of reasons. But I think the key here is in his phrase, poor and needy. I am poor and needy. There are two reasons, not just one, that David could rightly say these words. Number one, his enemies are hurting him and he has no defense. So we've, we've, we've covered that. But number two, David also recognizes and understands, as we see in his other psalms, that express his emotions of guilt and shame as opposed to imprecation, he recognizes that he is much more like his enemies. He is much more like those who are injuring and hurting him than he is like the God that he serves. He's still got a long way to go. Cheer up. You're worse than you think, David. He lives with his constant recognition. And he lives with a painful memory that the reason why God chose Solomon and not David to build the temple, and that the temple was David's capital campaign, that was his construction project, that was his deep and abiding passion from the moment he became king, and he didn't get to do it. And the reason God gave was, you have shed too much blood. And so this is going to be your son's project. And one of the reasons why Absalom revolted against David is because of David's many, many years of paternal neglect. David did not learn from his own experience of being a young boy whose father referred to him as the runt out in the field with the sheep. Where he says in another psalm, my father and my mother have forsaken me, And in Absalom's case, at least, it appears, as we read the narrative, that David didn't learn that lesson and apply it in his own fathering. And then, of course, most people are aware, especially in churches, of the Bathsheba Bathsheba Uriah incident where where David, while all the other kings are out to war, while all the other kings are out getting it done, doing their job, putting their lives at risk, David is at home taking a nap after the, in the afternoon. He wakes up. He sees 
a woman bathing who happens to be the wife of one of his very best friends. He sees her, it says, he sends for her, and he takes her. And then, to cover up the pregnancy that resulted from him seeing and sending and taking, uh, he made sure that her husband Uriah the Hittite died on the front lines of battle. And so as they say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. A hard lesson for the father David to learn as he buries his son Absalom, who dies in battle trying to bury him. David never lost sight, except for a moment, of the recognition that he is much more of a sinner than he is a saint, that he is much more unfinished than he is finished. And, and, and that recognition actually qualifies a person to be a king in the truest sense. So Ian Cron uh, wrote this song. Some of you know Ian Cron. If you're into the Enneagram, you, you, you worship the ground that Ian walks on. Um, if you live in Franklin, you may have passed Ian on the street somewhere. But he's got this song called Brother, and one of the lines says this, when I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. There are very few degrees of separation between one sinner and another. You know, David's response to Nathan, who was the prophet who exposed him for his adultery and his murder, his subsequent murder, was immediate repentance. I have sinned against the Lord. And then David's response to him is, you will not die. I have good news for you. This is not the end in fact, this might actually be a beginning for you. And then we get the prayer from David in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquities, cleanse me from my sin. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. That's the prayer he prayed after the Bathsheba Uriah event when Nathan challenged him. God's response was not to take him down, but to restore him ultimately and eventually into the best version of himself. Now, this is scandalously wonderful, isn't it? Whether we are a victim, an aggressor, or both, the news here is that there is never not a pathway available to forgiveness, grace, renewal, and worship. The question is, will we take it when it's put in front of us? The catch here, though, for David, again, who is described by Jesus Christ himself as the man after God's own heart. Here's the catch for David. His heart, obviously, is always open to pray God's words against the worst in his enemies. But he is also willing to pray God's words against the worst in himself. And until you're ready to pray God's words against the worst in yourself, you are not ready to pray God's words against the worst in somebody else. Jesus taught this very convicting line about logs and specks in which he said, 
no person, even no Christian, will be qualified to address the speck that is in somebody else's eye until they have removed the log from their own. That's an invitation from Jesus for every Christian to always consider themselves the number one hypocrite in the room. Start at home and then work outward. Of course, it's a mercy to address a speck because that could lead to an infection and it could lead to blindness if it's not taken out. But the logs have to come first. And David knew this and he lived it. And he invites us in the 139th Psalm to pray with him in this. And this will be our prayer leading into communion. So will you pray with me? And this is Psalm 139, the last couple of verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. You know, those words, I don't know where you've been. I don't know what hurt you're, you're absorbing. I don't know what hurt you've caused. But those words from Nathan that he spoke to David are also words that can be held and kept and cherished by anyone and everyone whose life is hidden with Jesus Christ through faith. And those words were, you will not die. The Lord is not going to hold this against you. The Lord is not going to bring his mighty sword against your house because he's taken the mighty sword himself on your behalf. And so it's with this reality that I want to once more remind us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's say you're contending right now with guilt or shame about injury or hurt that that you have caused. Or let's say that, that, that you're reeling from injury or hurt that has been brought on you. Think of these words from Jesus, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Or these words from David, Absalom, Absalom. Or Jesus, Martha, Martha. Why are you busying yourself in the way that you are when you could sit at my feet and receive all the fullness of my love? And he's saying to us, he's saying to us, you know, Campbell, Campbell. Um, He's saying to us, Patty, Patty, Casey, Casey, Reams, Reams, Kevin, Kevin, He's saying to us, enter into the safety and protection and care and tenderness and conviction, all of it, of my love. This is a table where you come to understand afresh again and again and again that Jesus died to bear your sorrows and to bear your sins.